Timirandasya Gyananjana Salakaya Chaksurumilitam Yenatasmai Sri Gurave Namaha Sri Gurave Vaishnav Guru Parampura Ki Jai Rinam Prabhu Ki Jai Sri Gaur Kishnodas Babaji Maharaj Tirubhav Mahamotsubhutiti Ki Jai Gaur Bhaktabrinda Ki Jai Gaur Premanande Ki Evening, everyone, and welcome. Tonight, um, in honor of the Thirubhav, disappearance of Srivangal Kishordas Babaji Maharaj, we'll have a slight detour from our program of discussing the Dhammadarastakam, and we'll discuss a little bit about the significance of Srivangal Kishordas Babaji Maharaj, and then we'll sing the Dhammadarastakam to conclude the program for the evening. So these types of days, the disappearance and appearance of great persons in our lineage are important to us and uh, give us a chance to say something, to hear something about about them and uh, hopefully inspire us to uh, pay attention to every day in our life as uh, sadhakas to the extent that their appearances or disappearance or the holy days as, as they may be he called, um, kind of, help us to do, to pay attention. Today is important. The message is, every day is important, actually. So, luckily we have a lot of them to carry us through and remind us throughout the weeks and months of the year. And um, Gorka Shurdas Babaji Maharaj, of course, is one of the more important uh, persons in our Sampradaya. You know that... Uh, Sometimes our Sampradaya has been referred to by Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasri Thakura as a, as a Siksha Guru Parampara. You might have heard the term. It's a term, incidentally, that um, is out and about these days, pretty widely circulated, but there was a time when it wasn't so within ISKCON. We had never heard of the term. And, of course, where the term came to us, that means disciples of Prabhupada and their followers and, and so forth, which we all are, was through, of course, the illustrious Pujapad Bhakti Rakshak Shiradev Goswami Maharaj, who brought it up in the context of explaining things to us about our tradition and, and so on that Prabhupada would have wanted us to know or that Prabhupada talked about, but, but not in detail and, and so forth. Of course, with the passing of our Guru Maharaj, then topics of Guru Parampara and succession and Guru Tattva were... Um, the talk, uh, the issue of, of the day, if they aren't still, there's a fair amount of confusion about that. So, that's where it came from, Siksha Guru Parampara idea. And he speaks about it beautifully in his uh, talks that are uh, published there in uh, Sri Guru and His Grace, for example. But uh was reflecting today on how widely the term is, is used these days and how differently it's understood than how it was understood by Pujapad Sridharmarsh, which would be important to, you would think, to, to find out how it's distorted and so forth. I won't go into the various distortions of the term and abuses of the term and whatnot, but, but at any rate, in the context of that, what comes to my mind immediately at the moment we began here to speak about Gaurav Shordas Babaji when I said he's a very important person 
in our lineage. One time, one of the, the uh, my godbrothers, who was also a follower of Pujapachitamrish, had configured his altar at his place of worship, such that Gorkishore Das Babaji Maharaj's picture was not in the in the row. And he had been hearing from Pujapachitamrish how the line of Guru Parampara drawn by Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur was was such that um, he emphasized the great contributors in the lineage who, who made outstanding contributions. Um, he likened it once to, to the uh, succession, let's say, of scientists. There are many scientists and they're all certified and, and, and whatnot. They all have some contribution to make. But they aren't all Newtons, they aren't all Einsteins, they aren't all Copernicuses and so forth. So if we want to make a list of the great contributors to the world of scientific understanding, then we're going to make a line from maybe, like I say, Copernicus, and then we're going to Newton, and then we go to Einstein, and maybe there's someone today who's like expanding upon or seeing the limitations of the Einsteinian way of understanding the world and so forth. So similarly in the succession, there are many, many uh, bona fide and qualified and pure, as should be the case, uh, gurus, acharyas. But some of them have contributed in, in enormous ways that cause them to kind of stand out to us. And so he sometimes drew the lineage like that by naming them. And this is the lineage that we're coming under. We're all coming under their influence. Because the lineage goes in like different ways, obviously. You know, there are so many different gurus and they have disciples and then it expands. And, and it's all going from up to down, I suppose, but it's going horizontal across out as well and, and, and then down. And so you can't name them all. Some people, of course, take exception to this idea of listing the guru parampara like that. Like you find in the Bhagavad Gita, the prophet published, got a list of gurus and whether they're all connected by Diksha is, uh, is questionable. In fact, they're not. But their Siksha is prominent. We're all taking from that. They're universally accepted personalities in the, in the, in the Gaudiya Sampradaya. And so he, he drew the line like that. Some people object to that with the idea being that you have to be in an unbroken chain and here's a chain that's broken because there's no Diksha uh, connection. Maybe, maybe even there's no physical connection between them and so forth. But this is more or less a material a type of argument, an argument of form over substance. And, and some of these lineages that emphasize like that, you, you run into a huge problem potentially because they, they have a standard, for example, that uh, upon initiation he will be given the, the name of the Parm Guru, of course, and then his Guru and his Guru and his Guru and his Guru back to Nityananda Prabhu or Advaita Prabhu or Srivas or Gadadha Pandit or Upagosami. Sanatana Goswami, Jiva Goswami, Upalbata, wherever the lineage goes, to one of the eternal associates of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And so each guru is to be meditated on and in terms of their internal reality and so forth, and which is said to be revealed at that time as well. And this is part of the whole meditation. So it's an unbroken chain of Diksha Guru Parampara and, and so forth. They give the Diksha Patra the letter when it has a list of all of them and their sarups and, and so on. And so 
you see the obvious problem, I'm sure. In 10,000 years, that's going to be a pretty long <laughs> list of people to remember and to, to meditate on. And, and in 100,000 and, and, and a million years, how long is this supposed to go on? So there's some wisdom to, in just in a practical sense of pointing out the great luminaries and, and so forth. And that's not to ignore then those in the actual initiating lineage and so forth. This is a little something about the Siksha Guru Parampara concept, also sometimes referred to as the Bhagwat Guru Parampara. But it basically stresses, you can't name them all, let's name them the big luminaries whom we're all influenced by and so forth in a public statement, and privately then we know what, what our lineage is, who's initiated by whom, and so on. This is the idea. Of course, when it comes to Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur, then then he himself is influenced by Bhakti Vinod Thakur, whom he received Harinam from, the Shringa Mantra from, and so forth. And then then he was advised to go to Gaur Kishordas Babaji and take initiation, Tiksha Mantra from Gaur Kishordas Babaji. And uh, so he did. And of course, after some time, after his disappearance, some people questioned whether that actually took place. And then, then again, this is the argument. He's, if he didn't get initiated by Gaur Kishore with the Diksha Mantra and the in this way, then there's no the connection is broken, and these are all more or less material arguments of form over substance, and uh, don't constitute a very deep and realized understanding of of succession. But at any rate, I gather that I'd taken the picture of Gorkhishordas Babaji Marjor off the altar, thinking, well, he wasn't a major contributor. And what did he do? You know, Bhakti Vino wrote so many books and. Envisioned the, you know, the um, interface with modernity and so forth, and, uh, and then Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur gave shape to that, and uh, in a big way with 64 moths. I mean, 64 moths means 64 monasteries. That means like monks. Means like they really. This is what all they do. It's a big statement because this, the Gaudiya sect was didn't have really. A lot of, or any for that matter, uh, monasteries to speak of, but they were they were renunciates and whatnot in seclusion, and, and in and not entirely in seclusion, but mostly household or congregation and whatnot. And here were like monks, and and there were young men joining who were who were influenced by the modern world, which would say to them, "Oh, this Gaudiya thing is a thing of the past," or whatnot. But they were they were captivated by Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur's contemporary kind of take on it and his kind of his essence and substance over form and his innovations and so this was exciting. It caused people like Prabhupada to join. It caused people like Sridhar Marsh to join the mission. That's not that they were unfamiliar with Gaudiya Vaishnavism. As you know, Prabhupada was quite familiar with Gaudiya Vaishnavism. He was born in the Gaudiya Vaishnav family. Gaudiya Vaishnav sadhus or so-called sadhus would come to his house every other night and smoke the hookah in the, in the living room and so forth. So he wasn't entirely, you know, taken by the whole, his religion of birth, if you will, but meeting Bhakti Siddhanta Siddhartha really, really powerfully influenced him, just like, you know, turned his head homeward or, you know, to, from where he had come or something, you know, now is the time to start the, you know, this is what you came for kind of thing. Puja Padshita Maharaj, also so many other, Kinjana Krishnadas, Babaji Maharaj, the well-known disciple, and these were all educated people and uh, socially progressive for their time and so forth. That's what they were like. And um, 
head. So comparatively, what this fellow reason what in Gorka Shore does Babaji Marsh, what's his contribution? So take his picture off. Not that he's bad, he's good, but I'm gonna make a substantial alter. Anyway, Pujapat Sudamarsh didn't care for it very much. When he heard that he became just outraged and uh, so quickly the picture was put back on the altar and so forth and that sitting at the lotus feet of Sudamarsh on his veranda there. You know, the fellow mentioned, the god brother mentioned, asked, well, what was his contribution? <laughs> and then Siddhartha just said, Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakura, this is his contribution. He gave, that, he gave that to the world. So, ostensibly, Gorka Shordas Babaji Marsh might not seem like that big of a contributor. In fact, he was... He gravitated away from preaching and even preached about the Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur not to preach. He was an illiterate person. He came from a cloth merchant's family, so a Vaishya family, not from a Brahmin family. In about 1849, he renounced the world, went to Vrindavan. He took Vaish or Babaji dress from Bhagwat Das Babaji Maharaj. And after many years in the Braj, living as a, as a true renunciate, he was called internally to go to to Nadia and there he passed his maybe the last I don't know maybe 30 years of his life in uh, in Navadvip Dham. There he used to associate with Jagannath Das Babaji, Bhakti Vinod Thakur. He would attend lectures of Bhakti Vinod Thakur. He wasn't much on lecturing himself but uh, he would attend the lectures and he had a very affectionate relationship with the Thakur and they both had great regard for Jagannath Das Babaji, and a lot of historical evidence to support their connection and so forth and their friendly dealings um, at the time. And it was Bhakti Thakur who recommended that Bhakti Siddhanta Sasti Thakur take uh, Diksha from him. And so, of course, you know, he went, and he was, a, he was an educated young man, and he was sought after by the secular society and by the religious society as well, sought after person. He was very well known for being morally stout, very um, pious, religious, moral person, a very well-read, a young man, very well-educated and uh, kind of genius type of person. So he had some qualities, let's say material qualities, that were very attractive, that made him a, a, a valuable commodity in the eyes of uh, thoughtful people, so you can imagine what that, how that could influence a person, being popular, sought after, and uh, and having those types of qualities can make one feel a little confident in oneself, a little proud, as may be the case, and so forth. But none of us had the order of Bhakti Nautaka go and take diksha from Gorakshoras Babaji, who was, I say, illiterate. He used to live in the fields. Sometimes he would take his place of residence in the fields where people went and passed the stool so that he'd be alone and people wouldn't bother him. He kept away from the public. Sometimes he would dress like a materialist so people would think he, that he wasn't, wasn't a real devotee so that they wouldn't bother him <laughs> with their less than real interest in bhakti. So rather uncommon, and they, I mean, by the time that Bhakti Sarsvati Thakur was going to see him, he was practically blind, also. And of course, uh, Bhakti Sarsvati Thakur asked him for initiation, and he said, "No, no I don't have to ask Mahaprabhu." Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. 
So they more or less dismissed him. And then, so then he went back, and he asked the second time, and he said, oh, "I forgot to ask him." <laughs> so he, he really wasn't interested in followers. There was a wealthy man, who I forget his name now, but he was one of those fellows who had everything, and socially, he was much respected on account of that. He had everything, but he needed a guru to be perfectly socially PC or whatever. <laughs> and so he thought, well, Gorgashadas Babaji, he's renowned saint, mystic, and renunciate, so forth. So I should have him as my guru. So he went and found him in the field. And um, he said, I've come, I want to be your disciple, and uh, and whatever you want, I will give. You ask, and just ask. And it's yours. He was a wealthy man. He thought, what does he want? You know, maybe he wants a hut. I'll build him a hut. You know, if he wants a house, I'll build him a house. If he wants some acreage where he can grow some food too, you know, I'll give him, I, there's nothing that I can't give him. I'm wealthy. I can afford it. And he's not going to ask for that much anyway. He's a renunciate. But it's the thing to do, so I'll ask him. You know, I want to be initiated. I'll do whatever you ask. So these kinds of people, like Gorgashodas Babaji Marsh, they may not appear to be very astute, but <laughs> he came up with a good answer. He said, oh, I, I just want you to stay here and not go home. And the man ran <laughs> from that place. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> you just stay with me. I like you so much. <laughs> You're so nice. He said, so he just ran from that place. So, so uh, hard to fool, you know, this, this kind of... Uh, person with, uh, with the falsity that we are really possessed of to one extent or another. So, uh, this uh, not uh, lack of interest in followers, this is a very, very good quality and hard to come by. Hard to come by. Pratishta, or the uh, desire for distinction and adoration and recognition and so forth, is, is um, permeates our material existence. And, and they take a lot of, lot of sadhana and, and kripa practice and mercy to, to overcome that. Uh, we were advised by some saints in, in our lineage how to look at it. I believe maybe Raghunatha said something like, this pratishta is like the stool of a pig. What he meant by that is, you may not have seen it, but in India anybody goes, will see that the pigs eat stool. They go in the fields and eat the stool. So if the pig stool comes from eating other animals' stools. And wow, that's really that's the poetic, if you will, way of talking about this should be avoided, this pratishta. This is very unbecoming. Very unbecoming. And um, it's very, very subtle also. So difficult to, to trace out and whatnot. Even the Madhimadikari, who's an intermediate devotee, who's an advanced devotee, will experience having her life and experience and chanting and may bring tears to his eyes and so forth and so on. But then he may, as they may still be tinged by some pratishta, so let the tears come. And people will think, just see how advanced he is. This fun to bring attention to himself. Our inner realization is not something that we want to overtly bring attention to. Otherwise, if it's budding within us, it will disappear. It's not something to show around in order to make yourself more popular. It's meant to take you away from that altogether, that false sense of popularity and uh, honor and distinction and, and so forth. It's, after all, that's all about service, selfless service, sacrifice, giving, and so on.
So we find this. Takabrakti Vinod, for example, has written about it. He's in Madhimadikari, speaking in tears. We find, therefore, these kind of examples, like Bhakti Siddhanta Sarchi Thakur, Sridhar Maharaj used to tell us, if a tear would form in his eye, he would quickly move it, brush it away. People wouldn't, wouldn't see it. It will attract kind of a cheap following. And so, by way of speaking about this, I want to say this is a very subtle and difficult thing to overcome. Sridharmarsh was very much known for having no petition, no interest in being in the front. Some of my godbrothers thought it was reason to criticize him, but it actually it was one of the reasons that he was praised by those who were in really new. Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur used to tell Al Prabhupada that Sridharmarsh tried to pull him out. He's a good preacher. Bring him out in the front. And Prabhupada tried, but his nature was to stay in the background. And for a good reason, not, not wanting to bring attention to himself and so forth. I once told him, I said, you're like uh, when Mahaprabhu returned to uh, Nadia after being in Puri and having taken sannyas and conquered the south and, and so forth. And you can imagine the people of Nadi where he came from heard about our Nimai Pandit who took sannyas, he's only 25 years old, you know, that's pretty young. Some of us will, yeah, I remember when I was 25 and what I didn't know and thought I knew. And and here he was, as a 25-year-old sannyasi, and he went, conquered the kingdom of Puri and went to South India and, and all the news of his religious conquest, so to speak, would filter back to Nadia. And he returned to Nadia on his way to Vrindavan. And so people were just following him everywhere. And he came to Vidya Bhattaspati's house and Throngs of people were down below on the bank of the Ganges chanting Jai Gorchandra, Jai Gorchandra, Jai Gorchandra. And when he came out onto the balcony, he looked at Shiva's Thakur and he said, What are they saying? And, he, and Shiva said to him, You are like the sun who, after rising, is trying to hide himself. Go back out there. Accept it. You are who you are. They're chanting your name and they should be and so forth. And, so I told you to mercy, you're like that. So you try to keep in the background so much that it's like on a stage, you know, you exit on the stage going backward and you keep walking and you come around. And you look and everybody's looking at you, you're there in the public. So the more you push away from this kind of thing, therefore we said in Daman Sarastakam, for example, Yashoda also, Yashoda is the name of Krishna's mother. But Yasha means fame, and Dham means to give, so give her a fame. Yashoda Bhyad. Krishna is afraid of his mother, and we should be afraid of fame. <laughs> we should be afraid of those who praise us. And drinking in that praise, and becoming intoxicated by that. And if we are, nonetheless, fame, Yashoda Dhavamanam, will keep running after us anyway. If we move away from that, from that fame, that praise, and so forth, and don't become intoxicated by that, she'll catch us from behind and single us out to everyone. Evejashkushuka tribuhana. Well, the whole three worlds, more than you could possibly imagine. The gods and goddesses will be heralding your position as someone in waiting only, not for liberation, but to enter into the realm of Prem of, of Golok. Such a big thing, like you find in Brihat Bhagavatamrita, Gopu Kumar is on one of the planets for spiritual elevation, and whoosh, what was that? <laughs> oh, somebody just got liberated from the world. It happens every now and then, every every you know Divya Yuga or something. 
It's rare. It's very rare. Liberation is very, very rare. And prem, which makes liberation look small, this is dulabha, sudulabha. Deepa Goswami says, he says, bhava is sudulabha. And he's talking about Vaidhi Bhakti. Mukunda Goswami, one of the commentators on Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, commenting on this section, says, in lobha, that is the eligibility for rag is more rare than the bhava of Vaidhi Bhakti to actually have this. So these are high things we're after. Don't be discouraged, though. Be patient, that's all. Because you'll go to and beyond. Good things are worth waiting for. And as you grow in this, you'll have that kind of patience because you'll know, I'm going. I can feel I'm going. There's some solace in knowing I'm going by conducting oneself appropriately. To be a sadhaka is a happy thing. Sadhaka means a spiritual practitioner. To actually be a sadhaka, that your life will revolve around your spiritual practice. And rather than the spiritual practice being kind of like music or something you do automatically, everything else will start to become music. I go to work, I do that, I have to do that, some obligation. But within, I'm growing every day in spiritual life because I'm practicing. I chant, I don't chant for a couple hours in the morning and then just go and forget all about it. I get an effect from chanting. It carries me into the day, causes me to think about the world, look at it in a certain light, and the whole world starts to talk to me. Like that, uh, Indraleka asked me, what is death? After the program, I walked down there and said, because I had given a long answer, I said, look outside. What do you see? It's, oh, so many beautiful leaves. It's so beautiful. I see red and yellow and orange. So that's death. It's just an angle of vision. So the world is talking like that. You understand? All those leaves are dying. That's death. Your death is just an angle of vision. You see it as something problematic, but... That's just your angle of vision. Sadhana is meant to change our angle of vision in a big way. Vishvam Punam Sukhayate. The whole world can be seen as a happy place for a, for a genuine sadhaka. So anyway, to arrive at that, good association uh, required. And this is one thing to avoid, this pratishta. We should see that it's it's going away. Not that by bhakti we may become famous, and we shall try to avoid that. This is a good quality. Shri much like to stay in the background, and as I say, by Krishna's strength, when he came into the foreground. So, like in Damodarastakam, this is also one way of thinking about it in terms of sadhana. Running away from, we should run away from fame, but real fame. Then false fame, real fame will come after us. And if you're Krishna conscious, then the Swarup Shakti will Krishna will arrange that people take get the opportunity to take advantage of you. So we to take we're able to take some advantage of Gurkishore Das Babajamaj, no Pratishta, and this is just like a small thing about him. It would be a big thing for us have arrived at that. Incidentally, where do we arrive at that? We can say briefly in our progression from faith to taking association that encourages the faith in the context of which we find our guru 
we get initiated and learn the practices and go about them systematically under his or her guidance, which causes then false values to be revealed for what they are and, and, and fall away, at which time our practice becomes nishta, fixed. In nishta, there's very good calculation or discrimination as to what's what, and one understands very well with their intellect what this pratishta is. Therefore, Mahaprabhu says about Nishta that Amanina Manadena, he wants no honor for himself. <clears throat> and he does, in a very intelligent way, he goes about avoiding that by giving honor to others. Actually, if you give honor to others, you will get honor. That's a fact. But honor that's kind of worth having, so to speak, even though you may not identify with it for the sake of your practice. So, what I mean to say is that in Nishta, there is very clear understanding, for example, what is this pratishta, and a concerted effort to avoid that at all costs. And in Ruchi, Mahaprabhu in Shikshastakam is not saying, he's saying something different. He's saying, I have no interest in it. In Nishta, there will be some interest in it, but one knows better and sees it in oneself and consciously seeks to re- retire it, move away from it. In Ruchi, when one has a taste for all these things, for, for bhakti, an enduring taste, not an intermittent taste, but an enduring taste, then, nadanam nadanam nasundarim kavitam he has no interest in it. Nadanam nadanam. Janam means followers. I'm not interested in it. I, it's, I've seen through it entirely. So this will come as we advance. So for that, this is a small thing for someone like Gorgoshara's property, but in a prominent way, he displayed that, in, in an overt way. Someone else, like Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur, who did become his disciple, had thousands and thousands of disciples. It doesn't mean he was full of pratishta. He didn't have any pratishta either. But in an overt way, Gorkashara Das Babaji Mary showed this, and it's inspiring to us, and it, and it stands out to us in such a way that we, we're drawn to think about it and, uh, in a powerful way, and, uh, and so on the day of his disappearance or appearance, we may be speaking about him. This is one of the things that usually will come to the fore. He didn't want any students. He did finally accept Bhakti Siddhanta Sarsati Thakur as a student in 1900, I think the third time he went. Um, I forget what the negotiation with Mahaprabhu came I guess it came out favorably. Hmm? And Lagorga said, I have to ask Mahaprabhu. And they said, oh, I forgot to ask him. Come back later. Hmm? The persistence of Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur was one thing that uh, was effective. And the other thing that was effective was, by the third time he came, he realized very clearly that all of the assets that I have, that people are fond of, of me for, they have no value to this man. He has absolutely no interest. So many people, everybody I meet is interested in me and the qualities that I have, my education, my learning, my moral uprightness and, and so forth, my good mind and whatever may be the case. And he has no interest in these things. Whatsoever. They have no value, they have no currency here whatsoever. So this, this was driving his persistence, I guess I should say. And, and as it really hit home, then the intensity of the desire for the connection with the person that had such wealth that it made all the wealth of the world pale in comparison. 
Uh, so that, that mounted that intensity. Uh, then Babaji Maharaj accepted him, and he told him, with regard to higher topics, you will realize your sarup in the syllables of the Hare Krishna Mahamantra. What he gave him, what mantras and all, we don't know. But whatever he gave him, it worked. And he emphasized the chanting. So appropriately, we find Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasthitakura's emphasis on kirtan. And I'll tell you another thing. The critical, if you will, style of Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasthitakura, with which he had the courage to focus on his own tradition, he critiqued his own tradition. Most people will be fond of critiquing other traditions in the name of feeling better about their own tradition. But to critique one's own tradition, I'll give you a good example of that. He made this, uh, once this diorama. It's a big thing in, you know, in the early 1900s to make a diorama. It's like today to make a multimedia, you know, Walt Disney type, you know, presentation of some philosophical point. So he made a clay diorama. This, this was a diorama of a, of a Brahmin with the, the sacred stone, the shalagram that represents Vishnu. And in one hand, like this, in the other hand he had a nut, like a walnut or, I don't know, a cashew or something. I don't think they had walnuts in India, but a cashew. And the idea was he was using the stone as a nutcracker. So what he was saying is, these people who are emphasizing this Brahmanism and that you've got to be born in a Brahmin family, think they have a monopoly on religion and so forth. Basically, what I see that this thing has deteriorated to the point that they're using the shalagram as a nut break. In other words, their religion is just to fill their belly. They're worshipping the deity and they're selling the mantras and, and, and so forth. And so you have to come to me, to our caste, in order to get the real current of divinity, and and that means you know you got to support my family and me, and and so forth, and uh, and so he took exception. There may be some place to this to some extent, but when that becomes overbearing, the the concern is only to fill my belly, or I'm only engaged in religion for material purposes, and then I'm posing myself as as the you know as the the person in the village or whatever to, that you have to come to. It's really a you're not only cheating yourself, but so many other people. So this is a very graphic way of doing this. The stone is to be worshipped on the altar with love and affection and and, and so forth, and with, you're supposed to give your heart. But he's using the stone just to break a nut. And this is how the stone feels by your worship. You're going through the procedures, but what's in your heart is something else. And it's repulsive to the stone, as if you were taking the shalagram and using it to crack a nut. It's a heavy statement, isn't it? Especially where, in a society where the people who are depicted in this have a monopoly on, on the re- religious public, so to speak. That religion is only with us, and he was trying to break that monopoly, and and uh, and it, his life was endangered by such uh, steps. But anyway, the thing went to court, only in India, and uh, then the proceedings went so forth, and and in the end. He almost prevailed, but the Brahmins, the Smarta community, they raised one objection that, all right, you've made your point. And this was, I guess this was seen as, um, what do they call it? Um, a lawsuit for 
liable or something like that. You've libeled us and slandered us in public in this way. And, and so he almost prevailed, and, but the Brahmin said, but we have seen that in your Gaudiya sect, people are also doing. They're saying, we are, I'm in the line with Nityananda Prabhu and his family, and so his blood is in me, I'm pure, therefore, and you have to come to me for the mantra and, uh, and support me and whatever, make a living out of that. And uh, by the way, I'm maintaining this pilgrimage place, and I know you spent your whole earnings to come a thousand miles to make a pilgrimage here. Why don't you give a donation to fix this broken uh, part of the temple? And of course, it remains broken forever. <laughs> and then the money goes somewhere else. The pilgrim never comes back, and there's always another one coming. So he said, this kind of thing is going on in your sect also. So with courage, Bhakti Zandasar Siddhartha then gave the checkmate. He said, very good. Then we'll change the diorama in this way. We'll put the, the Gaudiya tilak on that Brahman. How's that? <laughs> so they were defeated, and the theistic exhibition could go on. So the point is that he was prepared to critique his own his own sect to look, uh, you know, very scrutinizingly at it. It was like a very revolutionary, outspoken, and in a way that was uncustomary. Uncustomary. After all, the mandate of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was Trinada Pistuni Chena, Tarora Pisahishtana. Humble like a blade of grass, tolerant like a tree. And so most of the aesthetics in Gaudiya lineage, you'd find they were not criticizing anybody ever, always very humble, tolerant. And here comes this fellow, and he's just like, seems intolerant and critical and, and so forth. So it's very uh, different in appearance. But actually, the point I want to make here, among others, is that Interestingly enough, where did he get it? He got it from Lord Das Babaji. He was a pretty cynical fellow. And not in a very outspoken way, but because he didn't speak to too many people. But nonetheless, what he did say, you can see, he was very critical. Uh, he was, I'll give you an example. He was known to be a Siddha Mahatma, a perfect realized soul in Gaudiya Sampradaya. And so one fellow once came who wanted to be popular as a Siddha Mahatma in the eyes of the foolish public. And he set up a place for speaking and arranged for a three-day discussion of the Bhagavat, Srimad Bhagavatam. And the guy was a pretty good speaker, and so lots of people came. And he set it up just where Gorkashore Das Babaji was, was residing. You know, like about about... 50 yards away or something, or 30 yards away. And a lot of people came, in three days the Bhagavad was discussed. And what the man was actually thinking, as Gorkashore, Das Babaji Marsh revealed later on, was that if I set up shop here, I'm right near Gorkashore, I'm going to be speaking the Bhagavad. So naturally he's going to come and sit in the audience to hear the Bhagavad. And then I can say, even Gorkishore comes to my Bhagavad discourses. Yes, I saw him in the crowd. <laughs> See how insidious this can be. But Babaji Marsh didn't come. And then after he left, one fellow in the vicinity who had some 
occasion to meet with Babaji Maharaj. He said, by the way, we do some service for me. That area over there, can you clean that area? Where they just had that gathering. And he said to Babaji Maharaj, he said, but Babaji Maharaj, what can I do to clean it? For three days, the Bhagavad was spoken there. He said, you heard the Bhagavad. Oh, I only heard rupee, rupee, rupee. <laughs> That's all I could hear. Although he was quoting all the verses, and all he could hear his heart. Rupee, rupee, rupee. <laughs> Hard to deceive such a person. Hmm? So, we had a little bit of a, a critical, you know, in a positive way. Attitude. This was imbibed by Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasati Thakur. He took the spirit of Gorkashwardas Babajorsha and blew it up in a big way because the Sampadaya was in, in need of some some critique. And in his view, under the inspiration of Bhakti, you know, restructuring and so forth. So he did it in a big way and a lot of people took exception to it. But I want to say, among other things here, that he wasn't alone and he got it from somebody. <laughs> somebody that they all accept. While some people may reject the style of Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthi Thakur. And so, of course, we're all here today because of it, so we, we know otherwise. And Gaudiya Sampradaya is alive and well everywhere, to a large extent, because of it. It's getting life. It's all getting life from the push of Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthi Thakur, inspired as he was by Gorkishore, who, as Sridhar said, what did he give? What was his contribution? Gorkishore, Bhakti Siddhanta, this was his contribution. Of course, Bhakti Vinod had something to do with it too. Interesting point now about the two of them, because they were both the gurus of Bhakti Siddhanta. His father was Bhakti Vinod, and had given him the Nam, Harinam, and Gorakashara uh, gave him Diksha Mantra. And, and um, they had differing opinions. Babaji Maharaj said, Oh, don't bother to preach, it's too much troublesome. Bhakti Vinod Thakur said, No, you should go and preach. So we may have contradictory influences from our Diksha Guru and Siksha Guru. It's, it's, it's possible. Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthitaka was able to harmonize them in a way to, to satisfy them both. And, of course, he put Gorkishore on the, on the map, so to speak, all over the world. Remember, he was running away from any recognition. You can find him in every major city of the United States and Europe and Latin America and so forth, in somebody's home or in a temple. His picture... Gorkashore does Babaji Maharaj's is on the altar. This is this is Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur. Some people question whether he had connection with Gorkashore. We could have questioned if anybody in the world would have any faint connection or, or, or anything, knowledge of the wealth of Gorkashore Das Babaji if it weren't for Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur. Why don't we look at the substance over the form? You understand my point? <laughs> this is a person who really had affection for Gorgashore Das Babaji Maharaj, Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasri Thakur, the lone disciple, the one person that Gorgashore Das Babaji Maharaj acquiesced and agreed to. Yes, here's a sincere, a sincere soul. Gorgashore Das Babaji Maharaj predicted that there will be a Gaudiya Vaishnav sannyasi who travels abroad in the future. He made a prediction like this in the presence of Bhakti Vinod Thakur. And um, that was fulfilled by Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasri Thakur, who himself took sannyas from Gorkashas Babaji Marsh in a dream. He heard the mantra and then he formalized it before the picture. Some people take exception to this, but they don't know the scriptures very well. 
I think I just wrote about this in one of the sanghas on the internet, the way I get questions and I give answers. You may have read it. Vedanta Sutra cites that oftentimes mantras are imparted in dreams, and this has value and so forth. So that's how we got this. It's a different kind of dream. So he received like this. And then he gave sannyas to person whom he initiated, who was a disciple of Bhipan Bihari Goswami, it's a long story, who was the guru of Bhaktivinoda, whom Bhaktisiddhanta rejected for good reason, and who eventually rejected Bhaktivinoda, who was more substantially connected spiritually with Jagannath Das Babaji. I know that sounds pretty hard to follow, but <laughs> some of you have been around a while and can, can, uh, can follow me on that. And that person became Bhakti, I think, uh, maybe a pretty dear to Maharaj, and uh, he went to England and first treated Andi Sannyasi and Gauri Vaisha. Gaurakishar Das Babaji Maharaj predicted the very sannyas and, uh, and in a sense forecast the mission of Bhakti Siddhanta going internationally as it would through that humble beginning in London and then the big push from our Bhakti Vedanta Sami Prabhupada all over the world. So here's a very uh, extraordinary person energizing much of that, an illiterate person by material standards, and initiating a person who was very highly educated. Once, when one of the missionaries of Godiamat, the mission of Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasattaka, went to London and preached, and he came back, and he wasn't as successful as he would have liked, and um, he made a comment, he said, they have questions that we can't answer. Well, as it turned out, there were questions he couldn't answer, but others could. And when Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasati Thakur heard about it, he said, with a particle, one particle of dust from the feet of Gorkishore, my guru, there's enough knowledge to drown the whole world. This was his illiterate guru. This is how he understood him. And of course, answers have come to so many of those questions in Europe at the time. And there's no shortage of them and because of such persons, um, so to speak, spiritually energizing our lineage, the Bhagwat Guru Parampara, the Diksha Guru Parampara. He's the Diksha Guru Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur, and um, as I say at the time, he was living as a like a like a beggar and inevitably like a mad person. Sometimes he would get his clothes uh, from he would go where the where the the cremation grounds, where wherever clothes were left after burning the body, then he would take those and wash them in the Ganges, and that was his attire. He used to take um, mung dal and put it in a, a skull, some kind of skull, and then dip it in the Ganges overnight, and then that would be, that would be his, his, his feast. It's a well-known story of how he once was seen to have... Someone gave him an eggplant, a raw eggplant. And so he was very happy with that. He went and sat down, and it's likely he was talking to himself or something like that. And he was talking to Krishna and offering it to him and so forth. And then he sat down and ate the raw eggplant and just glowed. The next thing, I try eating a raw eggplant. <laughs> he just ate the raw eggplant like it was a, a feast. Hmm? Sometimes the children would mock him because he was 
looked like a bag man, you know, or a bag lady or something like that. You know, although he was clean, he would still look like disheveled and, and whatnot, incoherent and so forth. And um, he was seen one time being children throwing things at him, and he turned to them and said, "You better stop that, or I'm going to tell Mother Yashoda." So this is how he was absorbed. He was thinking, "Oh." Here's some children from the Brudge, and he's a coward, and you're mischievous, and I'm going to tell Mother Yashoda on you, and you should stop that. And so he saw the ordinary events of the world. He connected them to the Leela that he was absorbed in, and saw the whole world from that perspective. This is the kind of sadhana we have to do to come to that kind of, to see the world in that way. The environment in the language of Sridhar Maharaj, you say, is friendly. You need to look at it from the right angle of vision. So he's a very um, extraordinary devotee, and his one contribution, Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur. So we should think about this also, that what is the contribution? What, what are we looking for, really, in a mission or in a person? We're looking for purity. Not numbers of temples, numbers of books sold, numbers of followers, or anything like that. We're looking for purity. We have an instance like this earlier in the Sampadaya, where Lokanath Goswami, initiated Narottam Thakur. Narottam Thakur tried to be initiated by Lokanath Goswami, but he wouldn't accept him. He had no disciples. So Narottam used to hide in the woods, and when Lokanath would come out and to answer the call of nature, and then go back into his hut, and Narottam would clean up the area. So after a few times, Lokanath realized, somebody is serving me. <sighs> Who is that culprit serving? <laughs> He's trying to avoid being served, absorbed in the mood of being a servant himself. So, of course, he came out and he, he, he accepted him as a disciple, and, and he was the only disciple he had, and Narutam had thousands and thousands of disciples. So an instance like this, again, in modern modern history. So it's not how many books you have. or you know, I get that all the time, too. It's kind of fun. People say, oh, Marge, you know, people have known me from the past, and so forth. I haven't seen you in so long, and... And um, where are you? Where are you now? Uh, where is, is your base? Is it, I heard you're maybe in, maybe in, maybe in California. Is it? I said, yeah, I have a, a monastery in, in California. And I'd say, and they'd say, well, oh, how many devotees do you have there? And I'd say, well, this was a few years ago. Last time I did this was a few years ago. I said, oh, four. And they go, I, oh, I guess I shouldn't have asked that. You know? <laughs> and it was another devotee. Acharya of another missionary, this was in Bengal and Mayapur, and the other Acharya of the mission says, oh, he's writing books, he writes books, um, he's got a lot of books. <laughs> in other words, the feeling is, you've got to be big, you've got to be doing something to be somebody, and of course that's what we'll be attracted to, big display, something happening, something's happening there. Uh, now we've got about ten monks, so we're really doing good now. But, uh, <laughs> but um yeah, it's uh, we have to look, you know, within. We have to look deep inside. Rupa Goswami has told us like that also in his Upadesha Amrita. We have to look and try to see inside. What is the faith? What is the conviction? What is the what is the extent of the preoccupation with Krishna consciousness? Hmm? Try to trace that out, even though externally there may be some defect physically, which would oh, he's pure. Why is he got to? New Age people kind of think like that sometimes. If you're spiritual, then you're just like <laughs> beaming with, you've eaten every vitamin, you know, you've always had the right organic food, and you're just like zooming with it, which isn't a bad idea, but 
it may not be the case. Or there may be some mental fault in terms of what might be PC or something like that. You know, you might, uh, might, might appear like that might be also some defect. Or he may not have the big phone wing or something may be the case. But that doesn't mean people like me who have a small following are actually big. Don't, don't misunderstand me. <laughs> you can be small for, for, for good reasons, too, or bad reasons, or whatever. Anyway, so much to learn from saints like Gorkashore Das Babaji. And um, unfortunately, there's not uh, a real wealth of information about his life. Things weren't documented as well as we do document events these days. There's a short really essay of antidotes of the life of Gorkashodas Babaji that were penned, I believe, by Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur. Some of the some of these stories I've I've told. And uh, that's in print, I think, isn't it? It was in print at one time. Circulating around. Good book to have. It's really powerful to hear how he was such an agent for uh truth and such an enemy of hypocrisy in the name of Bhakti, which again Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasri Thakur so overtly personified. This is where he got it from. This is where he imbibed it from. It was justifiable. He exhibited uh, an overtly overt example that looked like he was proud, but he considered, I'm doing the bidding of my guru. This is what he wanted me to do. That's what's humility. If you have to do it in a big way, then do it. But uh, on his behalf, I'm speaking loudly and critiquing the Sampradaya. So, a few thoughts. Anyone have any question or comment? Yes. Can you give an example of a mental defect that a peer devotee might have? Well, um, let's say, for example, you from America have a certain way of looking at things. Let's say, social issues that would cause you to be considered to have a balanced outlook about um, human relations or something like that, relationships or something, that has eclipsed the way people thought in times gone by. Okay? Let's take a common issue. Let's say there was a, there was a point in America where women weren't allowed to vote. Okay? I don't know. They must have been... There was a time, I think, Christianity, where women were thought to not have souls. So, all over the world, people thought a certain way about women, let's say. And now, people think, for the most part, hope differently. With more knowledge and understanding and, and so forth. So, let's say you meet some sadhu in India, and... Um, He's been living in, 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 uh, under a tree for the last you know, 50 years. And um, the only information he has about women is what he heard from somebody. Uh, and he heard that all women in America are prostitutes. I've met people in India who heard that. And they thought, wow, all women in America are prostitutes. Wow, I don't want to go there. <laughs> and so that's the kind of input he got, information. So... That might show up or something like that. Then you think, well, okay. But, that, but you see his spirituality nonetheless. So based on information, he had that opinion. It's relative. For all we know, 
in a hundred years, they may say men don't have souls and they can't vote. Things could change how we look at one another. <laughs> Probably won't happen, but uh, something like that. Or um, so that's like a like, I guess a, a, a viewpoint, uh, relatively speaking, that might be considered a defect. Does that help? Are you thinking more like a disorder or something? No, I, I guess when I was thinking a mental defect, like it's also possible. Could be manic depressive. It's a chemical or biological reality, or senality. Yeah. You can find senality. Because the whole thing is going to deteriorate, you see. The mind is going to... Like Bhakti Pramod Puri Goswami Maharaj, he, he would forget things. And he would ask the same question again, you know. And what about... Maharaj, we just answered that. Oh, okay. He would laugh, you know. So there's a mental condition that's defective. And you think, oh, God, he, he forgets things. What kind of saint is that? Well, the, that's the nature of the material, you know, Orgasm or, or organism, I should say. <laughs> Excuse me. It's going to de- it's going to deteriorate. Hmm? Well, it's part. It's an orgasm too. It came out of that. So the organism came from an organism. <laughs> That's my defect. <laughs> so so excuse me. So so like like that. Something like that. You find him. He's senile. He's forgetting. There's one uh, sadhu who's over 100 years old, and my godbrother, Parmaviti Marsh, who's a guru, was sitting and talking with him, and then there was silence for a while, and then then he said to him, so you come back in an hour, and I'll give you initiation. And then his assistant said, Marsh, that's Parmaviti Marsh, we were just talking. Oh, all right, yeah, he doesn't have to come for initiation. <laughs> he's, so he was, he's becoming senile. Yes? So this whole concept, sometimes you hear this concept that... Uh, well, these things, well, actually it's been said, well, Prabhupada knew everything that happened everywhere in the society because there's no way that he couldn't have known everything if he was a pure unalloyed devotee. Uh-huh. That's not a proper understanding of the Siddhanta. And if you see, if you study the scripture, you find everywhere the all-knowing nature of a devotee is described, it's qualified. In the Gita, it's qualified. In the 12th chapter, you'll find that. And uh, in other places, in Rupa Goswami qualifies. Because devotees are sometimes described as all-knowing, but in his description, for example, of the qualities of Krishna, he goes through 50 qualities, I believe. He says the jivas, in their perfect condition, can have a percentage of up to 50 of these qualities. And then he goes on to talk about Ma, Brahma, Mahadev, Shiva, and so forth. I believe when it comes to Mahadev, he says omniscience. So this is not a quality that a perfect jiva can have in the way that Shiva, who's Bhagwan, actually, Shiva, transformation of Bhagwan, Sada Shiva is, is actually Vishnu. He can be all-knowing. He can know what he needs to know. He, it's an essential kind of knowing and and Krishna may reveal any detail. He can think about the disciple and he can find out things about the disciple's heart and mind at a distance, but he's not burdened. He's not God by knowing everything all at once and uh, and so on and so forth. This is this is uh, not the proper understanding, and Scripture doesn't support that. It is mentioned that the liberated soul is, one of the qualities of the liberated soul is, is omniscient, but that... 
omniscient, but it does but it refers to not being in this world, but having left the body and so forth. And then it's it's still qualified. It's a kind of all knowing. You know, I mean, what is bhakti? You can't know. Who can know Krishna? He's unknowable, unknown, and un- he doesn't know himself entirely. That's what the whole Chaitanya Leela is about. He's exploring the depths of himself, and there's no bottom to that. So, no, it's not like that. He knows everything all at once, and everything in the world. Yeah, you want to follow up on that? Not on that. So, something else. Well, last evening you had mentioned that uh, generally the Sadhana Siddha more or less said that his level of understanding of the struggling sadhaka is is more profound. And I just have a little, I I need some clarification, because when you look at the the position of the, the six Goswamis coming, you know, as they did from the spiritual realm, I'm just trying to balance that concept in the way you put it forth. Right. It comes from Bhakti Sandarbha. Jiva Goswami makes the point very clearly. What he really wants to say is that the principal means through which Bhagwan Krishna expresses compassion for the non-devotees or those who aren't sadhakas yet, is through devotees who have been in that condition previously and have some relationship with that by past experience and thus that gives rise for empathy. You know what it's like, so you feel some empathy. They don't experience it when they're perfect, when they're perfect but they have some, some memory of it. Now, you have the six Goswamis coming, right? They come, they're Nitya Siddha, so they're coming from there. But they're dealing with devotees, and they're teaching about devotional service, and they're in this assembly of devotees. If you see, study them, you see their association is always amidst devotees. I also said Krishna comes for those sadhakas, reaching a certain point and so forth. So they are extending compassion to sadhakas, tendering to them, who then will have greater capacity to have empathy for others. And not without compassion, but the full manifestation of karunya, of compassion, of kripa, from Bhagwan for the non-devotee or uninformed section comes through such devotees. This is the idea. It's not that the six Goswamis are without compassion or... So in perspective to the, the Uttamadakari coming down to the Mudjim platform... Mm-hmm. That's that again is for the practicing sadhaka more than what you're saying is that function of reclaiming. Yeah, like you take Prabhupada. Prabhupada's reclaiming people. Nothing could be more obvious. Certain people came and gathered around him <laughs> in the beginning, and they and there was a reason for it. He's reclaiming certain people. And New York people came out of the woodwork of Greenwich Village. Who, who are eternal associates of Prabhupada, even if they're not practicing now, and he'll be back for them, or, or somebody will be representing him. These people were devotees in their previous life, you know. You take like a Brahmananda, you know, there's a good example, Brahmananda, you know, he's not practicing maybe that well now, I don't know, I met him at a time when he was maybe now, but this guy wanted to go to school, 
to learn something in India or something. He had attraction for India. And he ended up applying for Bon Maharaj's university. I mean, you know, you just put these things together. Bon Maharaj is a godbrother professor at the university in, in Vrindavan to teach Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Some guy from the 60s in New York ends up getting enrolled over there, you know. And then a few years later, he gets initiated by Prabhupada. You've got to make the connection. This person is like, you know, expiring some karma from the past life. And when it reaches a certain point, this is how it will work, too. What karma you have not gotten rid of or offenses, whatnot, they'll come with you in your next life and they'll come first. And then when it's that burden is, is eased by expiring itself, then what you're about spiritually, they'll come to the foreground. So all of a sudden you find somebody who's interested in the spiritual life like that. And you can tell, I mean, I can tell who's a newcomer, never been involved before, and who's coming for a short previous time to some extent or for many times. And so the property came, and that's who came. And then through them, so many of them, people like you, <laughs> then he's, he was preaching to us, right? He was giving his classes to us, and we were taking it everywhere, selling the books to the common people, and so forth. So you can look at it like that. As far as Uttamadikari, Madhyamadikari idea, the idea there is more that it's not that Uttamadikari becomes a Madhyamadikari, obviously, but he brings himself or she brings herself down to, 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 to discriminate, which is a quality that's largely absent comparatively in an Uttamadikari and in his Kanishtadikari. In the Kanishtadikari, it's a problem. In Uttamadikari, it's, it's a solution. But in the Madhyamadikari, it's, it's, it's the characteristic of the intermediate to, to, to discriminate. So it has to discriminate what to say, what not to say, how the preaching requires some discrimination. You understand? Using your intelligence and can't say everything, got to say less, and who you're going to talk to, how you're going to spend your time, and so forth. So, in a sense, anyone who's functioning in a preaching capacity is functioning in the capacity of a Madhyamadikari, although they may be an Uttamadikari in realization. Right? Follow? Does that help? Yeah. So, that verse in the Bhagavad Gita says that the purest, you, you comment, you know, that it's that the pure soul is able to have empathy for others due to his own experience. Yeah. Sixth chapter, yeah. So is he talking about a sadhana city there? Yeah. Or to where relative to your experience, you're going to have better capacity to have empathy. Listen, I'll tell you one thing. It's a hard point to understand. I agree. Jiva Goswami's point. I had to think about it a lot. <laughs> This is where I've come to with it at this point. Another point that he's making in one sense also is this, because he's talking about Krishna there. And he says that Krishna is totally absorbed in Rasananda and he, he doesn't know any suffering. That's not his experience. So it's through his devotees who have experienced some suffering that he shows compassion. And, and he, he hasn't then discuss, well, what about Nityasiddha devotees, right? Which is kind of the point you're bringing up and so forth. Which, basically, he's, he's, he's saying what I said last night, that most people are sadhana siddhas. When you have the descent of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu with so many of his associates, that's another thing. That's an extraordinary thing. And they're all in association with one another, and that's how they're all interacting with one another, and... Uh, 
even the Chandakazi is Kamsa, you know, and you know the whole thing. It's the whole the Leela going on and so forth. And then they set this whole thing in motion. It will go out in waves, and and, they, and people get picked up by that, and then they become siddhas, and they go on from there. So mostly, he, he he's he's just the way he's making the point. You can understand. He says the compassion for the for the jiva who's not a devotee yet comes from the devotees. That, that in this world, that's basically what you're going to find most of the time. Now, you can reason that your gurus and that you sit if, if you like it, and you know, it's some subjectivity there, but in one sense, they all are because Krishna's that you sit and he's representing Krishna, so that may be the case in that sense, but his or her own past or realization is what. At a certain point, it's not worth sorting out. I mean, Narada is a sadhana siddha, you know. Prahlad is a sadhana siddha. What does that mean to you all of me? It's just like an interesting story that Narada Muni's story of how he became a siddha. It's interesting, it's helpful, it's instructive. But you don't think of it as, well, like one time he was doing that. Goodness. <laughs> you think, wow, he's telling us this story. Candid, that's incredible. He tells it in the Bhagavatam, right? Bhakti Vinod does that too. Tells his story, the candor with which he tells it, you can understand. Wow, he's pure. He's, oh, he's not worried. Somebody hear that about me? I did this. I did that. So. Another question. Regarding Gorakishora, uh, Babaji, um, he was associating also with Shlajaganath uh, Babaji, and yet we see that um, his his guru is listed as Shlabaktivinoda Thakur, even though. Yeah, he associated with Chaitanya Babaji as well. Do you have a question about that? You mean in the Bhagavad Gita, for example, where Prabhupada lists the Guru Parampara? Yeah. What, what's happening there in the list, and that was a list given by Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthi Thakur, is that, that he considered that Bhaktivinoda Thakur was principally influenced by Jagannath Babaji, who was the senior most Siddha Mahatma of the time. I mean, he was, I think, 125 years old. And when Bhaktivinoda Thakur discovered the yoga pit, the birthplace of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, ultimately Jagannath Babaji gave confirmation to that. He was brought there on a, in a basket, carried in a basket. And when he saw the place, he began to, you know, as best a person in a basket can, jump <laughs> and celebrate. This was the, this was the Siksha Guru of Bhaktivinoda Thakur. The Diksha Guru of Bhaktivinoda rejected the place of, that he found of Bhaktivinoda Thakur. And so, Bhakti Siddhanta reasoned that, that we find in that Jagannath Das Babaji things that we don't find in Vipin Bihari Goswami. And we find those same things in Bhakti Vinoda. So they came through Jagannath Das Babaji, not through Vipin Bihari Goswami, who didn't acknowledge the birthplace of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, etc. and so forth. So he formally rejected Bhakti Vinoda. And we formally reject that, you know, rejection. We respect him as a devotee and so forth. So, with regard to your question, there's Jagannath Das Babaji is listed, and then Bhakti Vinod is listed, and Gorkishore is listed, right? And Bhakti Siddhanta is listed. So all that's being said there is that that Gorkishore and Bhakti Vinod Thakur, they were both the prominent influence on Bhakti Siddhanta, and they are both influenced in a prominent way by Jagannath Das Babaji. It's not saying that Gorkishore was initiated by Bhakti Vinod, or vice versa. We don't make the claim. It's not trying to prove a Diksha connection. Do you follow? Therefore, sometimes it's called a Siksha Guru Parampara. Yes? 
I just had a question we were talking a little earlier. You made reference to um, people being fixated on numbers, quantity versus quality. And I was just wondering what your response might be speaking in public to someone who asks you, well, um, if this is so great, why aren't there more, visibly a lot more followers? And, and um, when I've heard other people respond to it, they've mentioned, well, there are many, many people in India and they, but they seem to also lump in anyone who's Hindu and might, I don't know, show up at the temple on Jamaastan. Well, I would answer in a different way. I would say um, the greater the thing is, probably the fewer the people that will appreciate it. It's like if you go to a diamond store for real diamonds, there'll be fewer customers. And then the, the imitation diamonds, there'll be so many customers. So it's a great thing, but there's a great price to pay for it also. So when I talk about the great thing, I can interest a lot of people. When I talk about the price to get there, people have something else to do. <laughs> well, it was a good talk, <laughs> the first part, anyway. <laughs> I mean, that's what we're also talking about, aren't we? We're talking about the sacrifice, service, surrender, and all these things, the killing your ego. I mean, it's a great thing, but then again, it's formidable. It's it's not easy. It's it's a challenge. If you want to have a, a challenging life, you know, an adventure, this is... This is it. So, hey, you know, how many people are on that show? What do they call it? Survival or something like that? Survivors? And, I don't know. It's not a great thing, but you know, they'll do anything for a million dollars or something like that. So a few people, not that all kinds of people are signing up. Something like that. Yes? To a question about Brahma. Now, at the end, it's, it's stated in the Bhagavatam at the end of... Uh, Brahma's life, he goes back to the spiritual world. And there's also the first position of a fallen soul is as a Brahma. Well, where did mm. everybody else come from? Well, what is meant by that, the first soul is uh, Brahma, is uh, explained in Bhagavatam. And um, I've commented on it in my commentary on Gopal Tapani Upanishad. And you can study it there. It's in the later part of that book if you have it. Uh, um, but basically, uh, Brahma Haranyagarbha, as it might be called there in Bhagavatam also, is considered to be like the composite of all jivas appearing, as it's described from the lotus navel of Vishnu. And as the, as the composite of all jivas, he's the first jiva, and then the creation, if you if you will, or whatever emanation proceeds, and the jivas, you know, he, he does his work, and the jivas are going everywhere according to karma. So they're in Shashupti, in a deep sleep, in Vishnu, and then the the golden lotus, Ranyagarbha comes out, and Brahma sits on the, on the top or something, right? He represents the composite of all jivas. So in that sense, the first jiva is Brahma. But it's not that like one becomes a Brahma and goes from Brahma Loka to Vaikuntha or, or wherever. And then like there's a dilemma, like you're saying, well, the first jiva. You understand? So that's how it's described in the Bhagavatam. Now you might hear it and interpret it in another way and 
and so forth, and therefore it comes to be kind of a dilemma. How can... And that's a whole other topic, you know, the jivas in this world, and, you know, where they... where they come from. But basically, it's the Leela of Mahavishnu, so... He's the source of jiva, the, the jiva. So, his Leela is Shristi Leela, the jivas, certain kind of jivas involved in that Leela. They keep coming and going with him, coming and going. And then the avatars come to try to take some of them out. And there's unlimited numbers everywhere. Unlimited numbers of jivas. And they come from like homogeneous kind of condition almost within Vishnu, Susupti. That's why it's compared to liberation. It's not, but it's compared to it. And that's why that's compared to deep sleep. In deep sleep, mind, psychic and physical dimension are suspended and one rests. He's not conscious of it. He's resting. When he wakes up, he goes, wow, I had a good rest. So he was experiencing then, but he wasn't conscious of the experience then. So this mukti is kind of like becoming unconscious. It just, ah, it was so painful out there. Ah, end of pain, end of suffering. That's what mukti is. Sanatana Goswami says, this is just such a small thing. Mukti is just a relief of suffering, that's all. Like a big anesthetic. And forget, compared to Prem, what that is, how awake that is, and happy, and so forth. So that Mukti condition is compared to Susupti, and Susupti is compared to sleeping at night in deep sleep without dream, and so forth. Anyway, from that Susupti, where they're in kind of an unconscious kind of homogeneous, they don't acknowledge individuality because karma is not in place. It's suspended, right? So when it comes time for coming out again, then karma comes to sort everybody out. And that's what we're sorted out by, isn't it? By our karma, which makes up our so-called individuality in this world. So it comes out as Brahma, so to speak, and then from there it's distributed. And then, as I say, some souls get uh, get liberated through the descent of the avatars and teaching Guru Parampara. It's just kind of always going on like this. It'll never end. That's a whole... And I'm just going over it briefly, but I hope that's helpful. You can look for that maybe in uh, Gopal Tapani. So, we've talked for a while now. Let's, let's sing the Dhamma and we'll have some prasad, right? <laughs>